Riff 3. It's dark now, and I'm standing on the corner of 10th Avenue and West 46th Street. Oh, shit. I realize I still have the pack in my hand. I slip it swiftly into my back pocket. Hope nobody saw that. I glance down at the pavement by the north side of West 46th. Damn. Was there a parade or something around here recently? What's all this confetti strewn around the edges of the slimy black curbsides? Bend. Squint. Wait a minute. That's not confetti. What we have here is an amazing accumulation of tiny, multicolored plastic stoppers. The kind they use as tops for crack vials. And there is a small mountain of them. Blue ones, red ones, yellow ones, green ones, gold ones, purple ones, orange ones, black ones, white ones, gray ones, turquoise ones. If you look closely, you can see a bunch of empty miniature clear containers mixed in with them. They're harder to make out against the dark, wet concrete. There's a good number of different colored three-quarter inch square plastic bags as well. A veritable rainbow of dissolution. Man, this crack thing is catching on in a big way. Out of control. It's a vile situation out here. A vile situation. Good thing I haven't gotten into that. There is spring in my step as I stride back up the block to my place. I glance to my left as I pass a long, dark garbage can corridor between two decrepit buildings. Small flashes of light from behind the dumpster illuminate the silhouettes of two glass pipe-smoking figures sitting on the pavement, their backs against the bricks. Propane flames emitting from their one-dollar lighters. Sad to see. Losers in the game of life. Well, as my grandma used to say, there but for the grace of God go I. I quicken my pace, and the rhythm of my walking is somehow inspiring my creativity at the moment. A little tune pops into my head, which I begin to sing under my breath as I approach my doorway. It's clearly a traditional blues shuffle, but imbued, I would venture to say, with a modicum of modern sensibility. Well, I'm going to the corner, going to get me a vial of crack, crack, crack. Crack, crack, well, I'm going to the corner, gonna get me a pile of crack. Crack, 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 when I get into the corner, I might not never get back. Crack, 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 went in the back, did I hit a crack, everything went black, thought I had a heart attack, but I'm going to the corner, gonna get me a pile of crack. Crack, 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 when I get into the corner, I might not never get back. Copyright 1994. All rights reserved. Riff 4. Slam. Click. Ah. A sigh of relief. Back safe in my apartment. You see? I still got it. My songwriting chops are still intact. Despite the somewhat sorry condition of my situation... I mean, it's not Swanee, or the latest number by Hootie and the Blowfish, or Madonna, but it's got a little something to it there. And hell, I just wrote it in the last two minutes. You know there's plenty more where that came from. I've written a lot of great stuff. I sit down at the table. The Mets game is on the TV. Sixth inning, one-to-one. How appropriate, I think. I pull the bag out of my pocket 
empty a good-sized white chunk onto the big round mirror and crush it down with a business card. I grab the razor blade. And then the straw. <laughs> ah, that's better. So, you might well ask, who is it exactly that is providing the narrative here? Well, this stuff does have the tendency to make one want to talk about oneself. Endlessly, in most cases. In fact, the most common sentence used at gatherings of cocaine users is, Let me finish! Let me finish! But, since we are the only ones here, kindly allow me to introduce myself. I am Barry Finnerty. Yeah, that's right. Your ears are not deceiving you. Internationally known jazz guitar player Barry Finnerty, at your service. Thank you very much. I grew up in San Francisco, started playing piano and reading music when I was five, then took up the guitar at 13. By the time I was 14, I was playing my first professional gigs. Tunes by the Beatles, Animals, Kinks, Yardbirds, Rolling Stones. I got my first electric guitar, a Fender Jaguar, for my 14th birthday, December 3, 1965, in Hong Kong, where my mom, an English teacher, was working on a one-year Fulbright grant. And the rock band I joined there shortly thereafter, The New Breed, opened the show for Herman's Hermits at a huge arena filled with screaming Chinese chicks. Playing music came pretty easily to me. It was fun. And I was like, wow, I can get paid for this? Plus, I quickly discovered it was a great way to meet girls who might not have otherwise been interested in a rather shy, insecure, highly intelligent, but socially inept individual such as myself. I decided to stick with it for a while. Back in San Francisco, which had actually become the music capital of the world at that time, at least for rock and roll, I practiced my guitar for just about every free minute I had that wasn't occupied with going to high school or tripping on the new psychedelic music scene, not to mention a few other things of a psychedelic nature. I played and sang in several bands, one of which, Beefy Red, got quite popular and played the Fillmore, Avalon Ballroom, and other major venues around the Bay Area. And I started getting into, dare I say it, jazz. I don't know. Somehow it seemed like a good idea at the time. If you wanted to be the absolute best musician you could possibly be, and I did, jazz was the final frontier. I worked very hard at it, taking lessons, going to jam sessions, practicing eight hours a day sometimes. By the time I was 18, I knew I was one of the best young guitar players around. I still had a lot to learn, of course, so I went to the Berklee School of Music in Boston for a semester in early 1971, shortly after my 19th birthday. And that confirmed it. Only a couple of the guitarists on the faculty were better players than me. I took a few lessons with one of them, Mick Goodrick, a fine player who had worked with Gary Burton. He asked me what I wanted to learn, and I remember this very distinctly. I told him, I just want to find those notes. The ones I was hearing in my head. I could hear them so clearly sometimes, but there were too many of them. I couldn't identify them, pinpoint them, or play them. I didn't know exactly what they were. After a couple of weekend trips to the Big Apple and hearing some true heavyweights such as Joe Henderson, Charles Mingus, and the Thad Jones Mel Lewis big band at the Village Vanguard, I did know one thing. I was not ready to be a big-time professional jazz player just yet. I needed some more seasoning and practicing. So I went back to San Francisco for a couple more years. 
Riff 5. Okay, you still with me? All right, where was I? Oh yeah, talking about me. What else? So, to continue the story, I moved to New York in April 1973 at the age of 21 and had some very good luck early on. Barely three months later, in July of that year, I was on my first tour of Europe with the Chico Hamilton Quintet and performing at the Montreux Jazz Festival on the same bill with Miles Davis. Not too bad, right? The kid had talent and he was on his way. In 1974, I toured the U.S. with Ayrto Moreira and Flora Purim, the Brazilian husband and wife duo who had been in Chick Corea's Return to Forever band. In 1975, I worked with the world's greatest jazz flutist, Hubert Laws, and also with star saxophonist Joe Farrell's group. In 76, I got into the big-time Latin music scene with the legendary Congero, conga drummer, Ray Barreto, who recorded my tune Salsa Confusion on his album that the very popular jazz funk artists, the Crusaders, were called in to produce for Atlantic. They, the Crusaders, then called me to come out to L.A. and play on Joe Sample's first solo album, Rainbow Seeker, and my guitar solo on Fly With Wings of Love on that record got a lot of airplay. In 1977, I moved up to one of my best gigs ever, the Brecker Brothers Band. Randy and Michael, on trumpet and tenor sax, were, and still are, two of the greatest horn players on the planet, and, due to their unique ability to come up with very slick horn arrangements on the spot, were among the most in-demand session players in New York. We toured for a month and recorded the live album Heavy Metal Bebop, which became a legendary musician's record and is considered one of the top horn-featured albums in history. Also around that time, they opened up their club on, and called, 7th Avenue South, a couple blocks south of Bleecker Street which would become my second home, mine and just about every other jazz and studio musician in town, the place to hang out, drink, go to the bathroom together, you know what I'm talking about, and, of course, play. In 1978, what the hell did I do in 1978? It's all somewhat of a blur now. I mean, it's like 16 years ago already. I was living on 81st Street in Columbus then, a beautiful one-bedroom with a view of the park with the planetarium and the Museum of Natural History. For 400 a month, I might add. And I'm pretty sure that was the year I met Miles Davis. Or it might have been some months before in late 77. He was actually my neighbor for a while. From late 74 through 76, I lived on West 76th Street, between Broadway and West End. His house was on 77th between West End and Riverside. But I never saw him at the local supermarket or anything. Not much chance of that. I met him through Julie Coriel, the wife of the famous guitar player Larry. She had taken a liking to me and brought me over to Miles's house one evening and introduced me to him as the young guitar genius about town. Miles was going through kind of a bad period at that time. He had not played any gigs in a couple of years. He had broken both of his legs in a car accident. He was in constant pain and was taking a lot of drugs, both the legal and illegal varieties. One time I went over there, and he was wearing just a bathrobe and slippers, sitting on the sofa and holding a gun somewhat menacingly on his lap. He had one of those Advent widescreen projection TVs. It was state-of-the-art at the time, and had gotten pissed off at its lousy picture quality and shot a few holes in it. I don't think I hung out there too long on that occasion. A few weeks, or months, I don't know, after that, I got a call from Julie. She was at her and Larry's house in Connecticut, 
but Larry was out on the road somewhere, and she had invited Miles to come up there to recuperate for a few days. Barry, she said, now's your chance. Miles is here, he's feeling better, but he needs his Percodan. Go to the pharmacy at 78th and Broadway, get his prescription, put your guitar in the car, and come on up. How could I say no to that? I went to the drugstore, got the pills, loaded my equipment into my funky little borrowed Volkswagen bug, and headed up the turnpike to Connecticut. I had my guitorganizer at that time, the same axe I had played on the heavy metal bebop tour. It was a Les Paul Black Beauty reissue that you could play as a normal electric guitar, but also had frets that were wired to make a Hammond organ sound when you touched the string to the fret, without picking it. It was put together by the guy down in Texas that invented the guitorgan, and I had also had him interface it with a monophonic ARP Odyssey synthesizer. High-tech 70s style, baby. Three separate sounds out of one instrument. Miles would have to dig this. We hung out up there for a couple of days. Miles had a girl with him. I can't remember her name. Honestly, I was in awe just to be in his presence. But it was evident that he was thinking about playing again after such a long layoff. He had his horn there and took it out a few times and played some notes. Gently, tentatively, long tones, a few short riffs, the sound that legends are made of. That was when I got my first taste of the Miles' sense of humor. He was a pretty funny guy. One night after dinner, we were sitting at the table, and he said to Julie, Get me a cigarette. Julie was a bit indignant. Miles, she said, would it hurt you so much to just say please? I mean, when you order me around like that, it's just so disrespectful and goes against all my feminist instincts. All right, all right. Miles grudgingly complied in that trademark hoarse, soulful whisper of his. Please get me a cigarette. Bitch. Bitch. 